0: This episode of the Noble Warrior Podcast is brought to you by C.K. Lynn Mindset Coaching for Entrepreneurs. Whatever mental blocks in your life you want to overcome as an entrepreneur, fears of failure, inability to take the actions you know there is to take, fear of success, three steps forward and four steps back, or even that thought of not feeling deserving after achieving all the success. Coaching is one of the most valuable tools you can have. It's an investment in yourself, and it can yield some of the highest returns. CK Lin has the skills that will empower you to achieve the most accelerated results you've dreamed of. To help you get started, CK is offering podcast listeners a free strategy session with him, a $1,000 value. Visit talkwithck.com and schedule your free session today.
1: I'm really excited today to have my friend Rich with me here on Noble Warrior. Rich and I, we met on Burning Man. We camped together at Camp Mystic, and we also sat in ceremony together. And right away, I felt a internal draw towards his presence because who he is to me, something that I truly admire in people is his ability to be fully present and to be playful under any circumstances, including difficult ones like Burning Man, like Ayahuasca Ceremony. So, welcome to the show, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Um, it's an honor to be here. So you actually have a really compelling story of how you came to this world. Can you share with us a little bit, why don't we start there? Yes, for sure, so, most people
0: don't know this about me, it's pretty uncommon knowledge I would say, but I was born in jail. And I feel like since that point I've been on a path to liberation, maybe being born in a cage kind of has inspired me to, to move beyond that ple- that cage, to grow into uh, a different existence.
1: Mm. So have you always been this playful, this present, or is there some turning points where you had "what is is me moments to where you are right now, full of joy and playfulness? There's been several different turning points, I would say, in life
0: for me. So many. So being born in jail uh, was obviously my first entry into the world and I I feel like as a child we're born into the world as this playful new being in discovery of a new planet, a new place, of a new body. Everything is new and exciting and, and inspiring and we're in this period of discovery. Now, I don't know if it's fortunate or unfortunate for me, but it was just my path. I don't want to put any judgment on it about whether it was or was not. But, I learned to read and do math at a very young age, and I think that sometimes those things structure our brain in a way, because we start to know things and label things. This is number four, this is number five, this is six, this is math. So once we start to put all those labels in, and start to um, kind of cage our being into knowing these different things, I think that we start to restrict ourselves and we start to build our own prison of our own making, but also of different people's making, so like our society, our friends, our family, mostly our family and school at a young age kind of put, this is how you're supposed to be, this is what a good person is, you want to be a good person, don't you? There starts to be all this pressure. And once we start to form those patterns and relationships with the world and with ourselves. We start to restrict who we are because we don't, we're don't. we no longer in discovery of who we are. We have to be a certain way, we have to act a certain way, we have to do certain things. And that's when we start to, to grow up, which means what, that we have all these preconceived notions that are fully loaded with different concepts that mean X, Y, and Z. So we're no longer in discovery, we're no longer playful, we're no longer in the moment. We're like thinking about what we have to do or be. So I think it's fascinating. Um,
1: to think of things in that way. So was there a turning moment for your life to realize that, hey, I've been deeply programmed to think about an outcome-driven life. When I have this, then I'll be happy, this and that. To say, oh, wait a minute. Your life is happening right now. Let me actually deprogram myself.
0: Yeah, there's been several points in my life where that has come about. I would say the first one was Basically, as a child, I learned to read and write early, and, and um, when I started kindergarten, I could already write and read and do math, so they moved me immediately to the first grade after the first couple of weeks, and you skipped grades. I skipped into the first grade, All right. and uh, I got in a fight like once a week because the first graders used to make fun of me, tease <laughs> me, smaller, because I was smaller, they used to sing this song, they would say like, kindergarten baby born in the Navy, <laughs> some stuff like that, <laughs> And my response was always just like to punch the bully in the face. So I got in a fight all the time, like once a week. Oh, wow! So at the end of first grade, they decided to hold me back and put me <laughs> in first grade again because I had quote-unquote social problems, right? <laughs> and um, what that taught me, that was one of the first lessons in life. It taught me that if you stand out, if you're exceptional, if you excel, that people are going to be afraid or... Um, they're going to make fun of you, they're going to pick on you, they're going to try to bring you down to their level, so um, my response at that time was to react violently because I didn't know any better or maybe because that was the example I had at home. Um, so what I learned there was that it would be better for me and easier for me to dim my light and to to get along as being more normal or being more um, more acceptable in society, more just, just, I dim my light a bit, so as far as schooling went, I just kind of did what I needed to do to pass and I stopped trying to excel because of my experience. Now that learning, that pattern ran subconsciously because that was at like five years old, right? So that's mm. seven, that's before you even really start to consciously think of things. But that pattern ran in my life until I was about 16, mm. was my year between sophomore and junior year of high school. And I, was, I had always been an athlete, so I played football and I wrestled and I did track and all that stuff, and I was good at it. And I kind of threw my energy and my effort into that because that was more of a competition. So you wanted to excel, you wanted to mm. exceed, you wanted to be great. So I did You put my best yourself in an environment. Yeah. To compete. Yeah. Okay. So I did. I did well there, and and it was always working for me. And I only kept the grades I needed to be on the sports teams, like you know, C, C's or C+, plus, whatever, like 2.2 grade point average my first year of high school or something. But then something clicked in me and I decided, hey, I think I want to go to college. So I told my parents that in the summer between uh, sophomore and junior year and they were like, yeah, right, man, you got to go 2.2, I don't know. And I was like, well, we'll see. So I clicked into high gear and I, because basically during school, even though I was smart, and I would just pass all the tests very well, but I wouldn't do any homework because I was always interested in sports or playing or something. Mm. So that's why my grades would be like a C, because my homework would be like an F, and my test would be like an A. Mm. So at that point, I decided I want to go to college, so I kicked it into high gear. And like my first semester back, I got like a three point nine or something. My parents were like what? So I had been sandbagging my whole life, essentially, you know. Mm. And so that was the first time I realized that I can shift these patterns that that have been running me as a child, or that I had formed as a child and I can actually do something different with
1: them. That mm. if you actually put in the effort, the results could be different.
0: Yeah, and it wasn't really so much about the effort, it was more just about like, well the, I guess it was effort because I did have to do my homework, that mm. was the main thing, that was the main shift. Mm-hmm. And once I started engaging there, then my grades were well, did good. But the problem was, it was a little bit late to, to pour on the gas, so I ended up going to junior college and then transferring into UCLA after that. Mm. But it's interesting because you can you can look at those subtle but profound changes. I mean, like dimming your light or hiding yourself, mm. and that leads to like a mediocre existence. And you know, my teachers always saw that too because I would always get that little check on the report card: does not live up to full potential. That was <laughs> so always there. Is
1: actually an item.
0: Yeah, is not is not meeting like his full potential and you know they have lots of examples of that but some small ones like for instance when i was about five years old i tried an avocado for the first time i didn't like it Mm. so i i I didn't like the taste i didn't like the smell the texture the whole thing so i made up my mind at five that i don't like avocados and it was like not until i was 35 that i realized hey avocados are healthy for you everyone loves them they say they taste good why don't i just keep trying it so like it took me a whole year like i started with guacamole and eventually I worked my way up to eating avocados now I love them but it's like 30 years I made up this decision I made up this subconscious programming this tastes gross it smells bad and it literally took me all that time to get past it
1: so so pause for a second because that's an interesting program you put yourself on you you put yourself on an avocado adaptation program yeah so even though you didn't like it most people would just stop right at 35 or whatever but you kept going so I'm curious to know what was the commitment underneath the that allowed you to overcome the, the natural impulse, repulse of the taste, the yeah, earlier but, programming.
0: Yeah, I just came to this point in my life where I was like, I'm not going to let a five-year-old make decisions for me. I'm 35 uh, years old and like, this is not, it's not like I was going to start smoking or something or something that was unhealthy for me or start sure. doing cocaine or something. It was like, this is a healthy thing for me. Everyone else tastes great, like why can't
1: I integrate it? It's because I made this decision as a five-year-old. I see, so you made a decision that I want to integrate avocado into my daily nutritional ritual. Consciously. So, consciously, even though I don't like it, I'm gonna spend a year <laughs> to get to the point where I actually can like it. I love it now. That's, but I love it. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. And
0: when I saw that I could
1: do that with that one small thing,
0: I'm like, oh, well, I can change all the programming that I it's just a matter of effort and you have to try and it takes some time. And well, sometimes it takes time and sometimes it's like instant. Like as soon as you see it, you can right. change it. Right. Other times it's more of a, pro- a process. With the guacamole
1: and the <laughs> avocados, it was more of a process. <laughs> yeah, no, that's beautiful. Huh. Yeah. Okay, so what are some of the other, let's jump around a little bit. So what are some of the other uh, shifts that you have conscientiously made? Are there other examples of?
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Transformation
1: uh, or taste?
0: Yeah. Other than taste, yeah. So, for instance, there's, I like to call them subtle yet profound changes that you can make in your life that won't cost you anything, but they can be liberating to you. For instance, if you think of your work or your job as something you have to do, like, oh, I have to go to work today, as opposed to, you get to go to work today. So there's a little subtle change in that, in the energy around that. One of them is an obligation and the other one is something that you get to do, meaning you're chasing your passion. So, what I would suggest to people, if you're not necessarily chessing your passion, if your work feels like a chore, maybe you ought to try and re-examine that and see if there's something else that you can do that will feel like you're in your passion and something that you get to do mm. because when you're doing that, you're going to excel at that because you're, you're not even working, you're out having fun, you're doing your passion. Mm. For me, I spent 20 years as a firefighter and paramedic. Mm. and. I was great at it and it was easy for me and I felt good about doing it Mm. and at some point my body started to break down because I was basically putting myself in harm's way for other people so Mm. I had some injuries that started wearing down on me like my knee and my back and going to work felt like a chore and I was like I started to dread it I started to have this feeling of dread because I didn't feel like I could show up for it physically anymore Mm. so I had always had this like Since I was an athlete, I had a really strong physical presence and I felt like I could just walk in the room and, you know, people could see my presence and then I could also feel really confident about that. Mm. And so now I just retired on a couple of injuries on my knee and back and I've been struggling the past two years physically and it's brought some emotional turmoil also because... Mm. If your ego, if your vision of yourself is tied up in one aspect of yourself, like mm-hmm. your physical prowess, and you've done so well with that like mm-hmm. throughout life, mm-hmm. and then at forty-five years old, forty-four years old, that's going away from you, now who are you? Mm-hmm. So you have to rethink and reimagine who you are. Mm-hmm. You know, And so, as that started to, to come through, it was challenging for me, and I started to have to ask people for help, which I was never really comfortable with. I was mm-hmm. always like, I can do it myself and I can do it if you want something done right, you, you have to do it yourself. That was something that my dad always pushed into me.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so that leads to a one-man show, which leads to breakdown and stress and frustration and anger and all these different emotions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as, as my body started to break down and I realized I couldn't do it myself, it was actually really fascinating because at the same time my business started to emerge, Rich Nuts, which is a sprouted organic nut company.
1: Can I right, tell us your tagline again?
0: Reimagine richness. Reimagine Richness.
1: Okay. Yeah. This is a different tagline than what I hear. Oh, which one do you hear? I want to get my... Huh? Nuts. You want to get your nuts? Into... I don't know. Well... Uh, <laughs> that's your story, <laughs> not mine. <am> <laughs> okay. All uh, right, never mind then. Okay. Cool.
0: i uh, continue your story. Some <laughs> people make jokes about getting my nuts in their mouth, but <laughs> I just like to laugh at that. What we decided to do as a company... Instead of make a bunch of nut jokes, is just leave it open for other people mm. to do, mm. which has been really beautiful. Because I sometimes, if you make jokes like that, you can feel kind of creepy or mm. uh, whatever. And now I don't have that energy because people just make the jokes and then they have the same experience. They laugh about it and, mm. they, and it's really fun. You allow them to make the jokes for you. I allow them to make the jokes for me. I see. Gotcha. That's one way they can participate in our yeah yeah in our business model. Oh, that's good. I like
1: that. I like that. That's yeah.
0: Cool. So we don't have to do it. Mm. But reimagine richness. And so the whole concept there is exactly what I'm talking about. Um, something I mentioned in take one was about these subtle and profound changes, like, so have to get to. So as my body started to break down, work became like an obligation. I have mm. to do this because I need to make money to survive, right? And mm. even though it's not good for me physically, emotionally, I'm, I'm broken down and I can't do it. Mm. I had to push myself for a long time. And finally, um, when the doctor's like, well, I'm going to retire you on injuries. It felt like a relief in a way. I definitely I cried in the doctor's office. It was a very emotional moment for me because, mm-hmm. to be honest, being a firefighter is like, um, it's one of the last really like respectable jobs. Like kids look up to you. Mm. Um, everyone honors you for your, what you do and your integrity and all this stuff. And so, mm. it's definitely like a bit of a an ego boosting. You're like basically a superhero, right? Mm. In the time of need, The
1: real-life superhero.
0: Who do people call? They call the fire department. You mm. come and you make things better. Mm. So as that started to fade away, and part of it was I, I developed this uh, sprouting nut process, which which I use in my product. I developed that for working as a firefighter because we could be out there six or eight hours fighting a fire, carrying hose up and down a hill, mm. and you know you have your brush pack on and you get tired. Mm. So I was eating a lot of trail mix at the time and what I realized was that it was giving me digestive issues. Mm. Um, I, I did some research online and I found that um, sprouting actually uh, activates the nuts. So mm. basically nuts and seeds have evolved over time to survive our digestive tract. Mm. So what we do when we sprout them is we mimic the natural process of germination. They go into a growth phase, they drop their defenses, they become more digestible and therefore more nutritious. So mm. I started doing that for myself. And I found that some of my digestive issues were going away. Mm. The only problem was after you soak them, they're like kind of moist and they get moldy very fast and the texture sucks. Right. And then you have to put them in the refrigerator. So now they're cold and mushy and I'm like, who wants to eat this? Right. So then I started dehydrating them, seizing them and that's how we came up with our final product. But what I realized was I was becoming more and more passionate about food and about what we're eating and about our connection to nature through our Mm. food source. Mm and when i say reimagine richness i mean like nature is all around us and it's ready to receive us it's ready to to teach us and we're not paying attention to it in general we're just Mm. kind of running around doing our own thing trying to make money trying to pay the bills trying to compete with each other Mm. and i think that when i talk about reimagining richness i mean like if we can reimagine what it means to be rich like Mm. rich in relationships with friendships rich in connection with nature Rich in being present and having everything you need through network as opposed to, i got to buy this, i got to out-compete my neighbors, i gotta, I got to do, 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 do. You can just be and be comfortable with what you have and who you're with and who you know and spend your energy cultivating those relationships and growing and building from there. One of the things I think that's helped set up this paradigm of competition has been the way we play games. Mm. For instance, Monopoly. This is one of the biggest games in the whole world. And the goal of Monopoly is to raise the rent on your your friends, your neighbors, the kids on your street, bankrupt them, and that's how you win. So that fundamental paradigm setting concept of competition mm. is built in from a very young age. And then we go out and we live our life and
1: we push that competition into the game of life. And then we have the world we, we see now. Right. I mean, following that same thread, if you really look at the game of economics, if you just look at, you know, what do the companies pay attention to? Revenue, profit, profitability. Mm-hmm. What do the countries look at? GDP. Right. So ultimately, it comes down to whoever has the biggest bank account wins. Exactly. And that is the metrics that we've been programmed in you know, our whole life. Exactly. Yeah.
0: And that's why I'm really into gaming and, and being creative and. So, just for instance, I created this game, I forgot the others, I'll show you later, but I created this game called Get Rich Nuts. It's kind of like an interactive Where's Waldo, mm. and I played it at Lightning and Bottle the last two years, mm. and basically, I noticed there was this phenomenon of totems, and they're basically like, each group will make like a a stick, and it has like some sort of light on top or something on the top that's basically unique to that group. So like if you go to the bathroom and you want to come back and find your friends, you look for their totem. It could mm. be a jellyfish or a rabbit or a carrot, whatever. And I noticed the phenomenon and I was like, oh, I wonder if there's something we can create that will interact with that. So what I did was I created a totem that was a dream catcher mm-hmm. and in it, it says get rich nuts. And then I talk about it at my, at my talk I gave in the learning kitchen on how to sprout and make nut milks. And I also put it on my, you know, Instagram channel and stuff like that. And, and, and then when I do sampling at the event, I tell people about it or if people run into me with it and I'm talking to them, I tell them, okay, you want to play a game? You're active now. So basically, they find me with the totem, it's a win-win game, it's a paradigm shifting game. So they find me with the totem, they win a free bag of nuts, that's what they win, and what I win is I get to catch their wish for peace and hang it in my dream catcher.
1: Mm.
0: And the way I do that is I have these laser cut wooden feathers, they write on there their wish for peace and then we tie it up in the dream catcher. I love it. Yeah. Wow. And, and then at the end of Burning Man, I, I put them all in the temple and they get ceremoniously burnt mm. and, and released into the ethers. And what I found, and what what I'm winning, so the brand wins, like the content for all that. So that's a win for the brand, a win for the kid is the, or or the contest, you know, player is the bag of nuts, and the win for me is to sit down with these kids and get them right for pit, a wish for peace, and they usually have like this really authentic moment, and it's really inspiring to me to see them um, connect with someone in their family and what they know about love or peace, and share that. So it's really beautiful.
1: Thanks for sharing that.
0: Yeah, I it's love
1: it. it's really special actually. It's very really moving. So let's actually talk a little bit about courage. You had quite a life and mm. professionally you chose the well, you you were a high school athletes and you you know chose to be a firefighter. Mm-hmm. Where most people will run the other way, you've run into the fire, right? And one may say that's extraordinary. Mm. What was the internal journey that you had to go through to essentially fight the uh, survival instinct? How did you cultivate it? How did you develop it? Because I think a lot of the listeners, uh, my listeners, the podcast is called Noble Warrior. Yeah. How do you cultivate that warrior spirit? Yeah. You know, Can you cultivate it? Is it birth and gift and natural? And you, either you have it or you don't, or you can actually cultivate it?
0: Well, I think that... so. You know, as I was born in jail, I never. Uh, so my parents were were heroin addicts essentially, and that's how I ended up being born in jail. And basically, they separated after they got out, and my mother she couldn't really quit the habit, so my father ended up taking care of me. So I had a very male do- uh, dominated. Actually, that's not true because I, I spent a lot of time with my grandmothers and my aunts and stuff, but. My father was the main parent in my life Mm. and he was always just very, this is what we're doing, there's no like, I'm not doing this, no whining, no complaining, it's like, when I was five or six years old, we would go fishing in the Sierras and it was very simple, we'd wake up at before dark, like 4.30, get dressed, it's freezing cold in our little tent, we'd load up with as much stuff as we can carry fishing gear and we'd walk two miles before the sun got up,
1: you know, Mm.
0: and it wasn't like... I'll carry everything for you. It's like, hey, you're carrying your fishing pole and you're carrying your stuff. I wasn't like loaded down like a mule or anything, but it was enough for me that it was a challenge. Mm. It kind of reminds me of like uh, if you ever saw Conan the Barbarian when he first started, he was like pushing that wheel and then he got super strong because he was like working out all the time. It was just like, it was just the way of being and there was no questioning it that Mm. you're doing this. So Mm. I felt like it came up. And I didn't have that that mothering balance, you know. And my stepmom didn't come into the picture till I was around seven or something. And mm. for me, it was always, and I think that's why it led to me being an athlete. And then I joined the Navy Reserve, and then I was a fireman. It's all like very masculine stuff, right? And that's mm. that's the way I've shown up in the world. And I think that um, it was just kind of the way I didn't know anything different, you know. Mm. There was no like softening or or. Or babying, or any of that stuff, for me. I never remember being baby. Mm. so I just kind of existed that way, and you no know, asking for help or any of that. Those were all like, to me, being babied or something, you know. Mm. So now, as I went into the fire service, you know, there's a lot of training involved when you go into. You practice on these different fire um, scenarios and stuff. And to me, it was just really exciting. It was more like. Doing sports, you had the right protective gear, you had the right training, you knew what to do. So it never really felt very scary to me, even in the very beginning. And I found this is where it got really fascinating for me, as I was transitioning out of the fire department and into being an entrepreneur, mm. that was really scary to me because I had no experience in that. And I was just like felt like I was completely without a team, you know, I was just jumping into this realm of creating a business and trying to make a living yeah. from selling this product and I had no experience and I felt I was more afraid of that than going into a fire to be honest yeah. and so it's fascinating because most people are like oh yeah you just do X y and Z and I'm like okay well it's a totally different experience and so I had to learn to as my masculine my, my masculine prowess was like diminishing I had to really learn to come into balance with my feminine side, which is more about collaboration and building a team mm-hmm. and not being in competition, but like how can I find partners that will want to build this with me, want to build something special, something different, something unique. Mm-hmm. It's like my whole my whole take on business is to bring in more than just the bottom line, you know, it's like people, planet, profit, to bring in balance, to bring in mindfulness mm-hmm. uh, with our business. What is the impact of our product on the world? How does it affect the people that make it? How does it affect the people that grow it? So to bring all of those things in makes it a lot more difficult than just like what's the bottom line. Right. Because you're actually accounting for all those externalities that most businesses don't. Right. You know, pollution, um, carbon footprint, uh, all of those things. So we're working to reimagine a world where businesses think that way and we want to see like. We're inspired by some businesses that are showing up that way, and we'd like to continue that effort and grow that effort.
1: So, if you don't mind, actually go into a little bit more the journey from downpacking that in the, that internal shift, right? Because hmm. i shared share my personal experience with you. From my point of view, I was raised by tiger parents, super masculine. Basically, you don't have an A, you're nothing. This is not what they said, but that's my interpretation of what they said. Mm-hmm. Right. So. In hindsight, looking back, I understand why I developed this very, almost like cynical or bitter view on life, Mm -hmm. because if I don't have the results, I'm not worth the love. Essentially, that's my internal viewpoint of life Mm -hmm. in general. Mm -hmm. That turned me more bitter, that turned me more uh, brittle as well, Mm -hmm. because then I have to achieve this outcome, otherwise I'm worth nothing. So I'm very fragile in that way. -hmm. Right. So, curious to know, from your point of view, with your experience, how did you go from a very masculine environment, and now merging into more harmonized with, as you said earlier, the more feminine, the collaboration, the, the asking for help. Because that, I'm sure, is a journey in itself, right? It wasn't natural, it wasn't easy, it wasn't, you know, what you were trained to do. How were you able to do that? And how were you able to actually do that successfully? Yeah,
0: well, it's been a process for sure. <laughs>
1: um, Entrepreneurship, to anyone listening, to me, is one of the, the ultimate transformational process. Yeah. yeah. If it's, you want it to be, a transformational. Process.
0: It's a path of personal discovery. Oh, uh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it, it's all per- perfect. It happened at the right time as I was, you know, as my body was breaking down. And really, I was forced to. The way it happened, I was, I was, I had no choice. Like physically, sometimes I couldn't get out of bed. My back hurt so bad. Like turning over and going to the bathroom was like a challenge. So I had to start learning to ask for help. And with the business, what I realized is there's so much stuff going on. And some of the stuff I'm not really good at and I don't really need to do. So I had to ask people that were better at that to take that part on and being physically incapable of doing some of that made it where it was completely necessary for me to ask people to help me and um, I cried a bunch <laughs> I did a lot of ayahuasca ceremonies so that helped that definitely helped Okay. and actually so here's a really good realization that came out of an ayahuasca ceremony since I had never done any type of entrepreneurial work or sales I didn't really know where to start, and it felt like when I was first trying to sell, it was I was I was getting kind of unnatural, mm. and I would just try to force it. Mm. And in the ceremony, the very clear insight came through to me. It was like when I think of sales, my concept of sales is like a used car salesperson. Mm. When I think of that, like my body is like no, and it shuts down. Mm. You know, and I didn't want to be that, but that's the concept I had in my head of doing sales. So. The guidance I received from the medicine was basically like, let's look at this a different way, something that you love to do, something that you're passionate about. For me, that was educating, informing, and sharing, Mm. and when I'm doing those things, I feel alive, I feel passionate, I feel like, oh my god, this is what I'm born to do. Right. So I was able to make that internal shift, and as soon as I made that internal shift- And
1: you also made it fun too.
0: And I made it fun, yes. Well, then it became fun. Mm. And then fun couldn't help but happen because I was in my passion. It's like I didn't even have to make it fun, it just became fun and then that reflects in the work. Otherwise it feels like I would get like very robotic when I'm trying to sell to you and then people would sense that and be like, no, I'm good and just not buy. But once I made that shift, it was really powerful and literally the next day, so that was Friday night of ceremony, Saturday night a friend of mine came to the ceremony and she was like, hey, would you like to give a talk at the Do Lab? I run the learning kitchen. And if you want to put on a presentation about sprouting nuts, it would be great. And I was like, wow, literally I made the shift in my mind. Okay, I'm going to start educating more. Mm-hmm. And the opportunity arose. So mm-hmm. I said yes. And that was last year. So I gave a talk at the Learning Kitchen. I created that game, Get Rich Nuts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had 11 winners. And it's like 11 beautiful moments, authentic, real moments with people. Like those are, to me, the gems of life, the gifts of life, you know. Mm-hmm. And you can't ever really have those unless you're being present and, and in the moment. So, I mean, that, that, was, that was a big part of the transition for me was about, this is about education and information. And, and even fascinating, fascinating as it may sound, I don't know if you're familiar with Toastmasters? Yeah. yeah. So, about three years ago, I was still a fireman and I was, maybe four years ago, three or four years ago, I was doing, I was working as a firefighter. And I really had no reason to go to Toastmasters other than I thought it sounded interesting. And I had some discomfort around speaking publicly or, or sharing my thoughts with people. And I randomly went into Toastmasters and um, I loved
1: it and I had a great time. So well, I mean, it's, you don't just open a door and like, oh, I'm sorry, I stumble upon a Toastmaster meeting, but you actually yeah. sought it out. I did. A friend <laughs> of mine.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, a friend of. I mean, but I had no purpose to do it. Like I wasn't like I'm doing this for work because I have to do sales or I have to uh, okay. do anything like that. Like some people go in there for a reason. The uh, only thing that had ever happened was a friend of mine in the fire department had told me about it, and he had done it before he got hired to practice for interviews, and it sounded intriguing to me, so I went and tried it, and I really loved it, and so I went for about three years. with no plan of doing any talking or anything, it just kind of came to me that I should go and it found interesting and I was passionate about it. And now it turns out that I'm doing public speaking, I'm doing your podcast, and all those things that I was learning were for a reason. And I had no idea why in the beginning that I was going there, but it's always like there's a divine plan in place that starts to click in. Mm. So, and then, you know, doing public speaking and putting on workshops, I feel like, as far as my role in the brand, that's going to be my role moving forward. Right. Evangelist. Building, building the brand story. Yeah. Sure. And really, like my goal is to connect people back to nature because I feel like we've lost that connection. Mm. So, with each of our products, I want to break down, like, these are the ingredients. And I don't make make mean to make this into a large commercial, but I think it's really important because it shows a lot about my concepts and like my view of the world and, and how we can make this a better place for all of us, a sure. better experience. Mm. So I think that reconnecting people with nature through teaching and showing, not only just talking about or reading, but like creating video content. Like I went to the maple syrup farm, for instance, two weeks ago in Jackman, Maine, mm. which is about 10 miles from Canada. It was super snowy and covered in, in snow, like four feet deep. And basically, I learned, and I'm going to create some content around this, basically how to, I just need to edit it all down, how they get the sap out of the tree, pump it over, well, they call it the sugar bush, so how they get the sap out of the sugar bush and then they distill it down into maple syrup and it's a whole process and so I went through that whole process because I think it's important for people to know that and to have the transparency to see like where their food comes from, not just the store but there's a whole story behind it and the transportation and the whole the whole thing. So what I really want to do is be mindful of that and share that with, with people and so for each ingredient, for each part of our process, for each product, so there's a whole rich story for me to tell there. And so you know learning to speak and to communicate and to be articulate about these messages that have been coming into my sphere I think that's part of what I'm here to do and I feel very passionate about it yeah that's that's where it becomes fun
1: so I have a question about by the way did you answer the question about cultivating warrior spirit? I kind of didn't feel like it was a choice for me you know it's just
0: always with my dad there was no It wasn't a choice I guess my dad Instilled it in me at, mm. at a very young age that there's no there's no whining about. I mean, he he would let me cry when I had to cry or whatever. It wasn't mm. like don't cry or anything like that. But it was always just do or do not. No no BS. This is what we're doing. Mm. Get Mas- up and let's go.
1: Very masculine uh, way of caring. Yeah.
0: Yeah. For sure.
1: So you also touch about uh, upon a few points about essentially you just follow. Your curiosity, yes, and it later on turned into be really helpful, right? The skills of public speaking, the sprouting, the you know tapping in, you allow yourself to cry, Mm -hmm. all these things. So how do you? And I'm gonna use the word flow, Mm -hmm. right? Because to me, you're someone who seems, right, based on your story arc, your narrative, Mm -hmm. seems to tap into flow in a very natural way. Yeah. Is it cultivated? Is it intentional? Literally, literally just follow your curiosity and just things happen effortlessly. Kind of all of the above. <laughs> Sometimes I do
0: it with intention, like I do make effort to make certain things happen. Um, but it, it really is about play, like you mentioned play earlier and how important play is. And I think that play is what we did as children. We went out and played. We didn't have like a goal or we're just, hey, I'm going to go play down the street with my friends. That's what I used to say, you know, and that's what I would tell my parents. And I think that when we're in that state of play and discovery and we don't have an agenda or a goal in mind, that we're able to really be present with each other and cultivate relationships. And so I think that I do have that sense of curiosity, and I think that's what keeps me childlike, and I think that is what attracts people to me. I, I do have this strange magnetism, like you mentioned it, and people tell me that all the time. Like, I don't know what it is about you, but I need to come, I need to know you, you know? And that happens to me all the time, and I'm like, well, I'm just a regular guy, like, getting along. I'm not anything special, but I think where people find that special part is that I am curious, and when I find something really interesting and intriguing, I'll share it with you. I'm mm-hmm. not gonna, like, hey, you can't have this, this is mine. I'm not yeah. in a competitive state. I mean, I did compete a lot when I was doing uh, sports, and, um, you know, being very on my very masculine side, but I kind of let all that side go. Even when I went into the fire department, I had already kind of cut back from a lot of the competition, Mm. but that environment is a very competitive, masculine environment, so in the fire academy, guys were always trying to compete with me, and I I was pretty built at the time. I was muscular and strong and really strong. You still
1: are? I still am.
0: I feel like I'm shriveled up from them.
1: Oh, okay. I don't don't know what you're referring to here, but (laughs) okay. okay. I got you.
0: (laughs) But on top of that, I was also really fast. I could run really well. And so the guys were always trying to compete me with with running. And there was only one guy that was faster than me. So I always thought it was funny. And a lot of times people are competing with me and I don't even realize it. And then they're like, come up to me and try to like start some kind of drama around competition. Mm, Peacocking. Yeah. And I was like, Oh I'm sorry. I came in second. Where did you come in? You know? They'd <laughs> be like, oh, tenth or something. So I was like, Do you have something else to say? Like I've always had people competing with me on some level, and I think that's just the masculine side of people and that, that underlying program of competition that's been ingrained into most of us with the society that we're living in. And so unprogramming that has been a really challenging uh but also like anytime there's a challenge it's an opportunity I look at it. I look at it like that. So I love challenges. I love opportunity. I love when someone says, oh, you can't do that. That's impossible. And I just go, okay, you just stay right there and watch. Yeah, right. You know, that, that to me is like, oh, perfect. I'll show you something cool. Mm. I don't believe that anything is impossible. And I think that if we stay in a, in a state of curiosity and discovery and in flow, we can follow the natural currents. We can follow, um, where, if we're allowed to, to be in touch with that intuitive nature of ourselves and we can really connect, and find the answers to that and it may take some time and it may be like oh you think you have to do something a certain way and this is, this is something that's really powerful that I, I learned with people that sometimes we have like something we want to communicate with someone or an, a behavior we'd like to see them change we try to push and push and push our way and like hey this is the way you should do it and all this and usually it's like banging our head against a brick wall but what I found is if you can be a little bit more subtle and drop behind behind the ego Because if you, if you try to tell someone how to do something or what they should do to change you usually inflame their ego they get defensive and then you're just basically talking to a wall everything shuts down and they're not listening
1: yeah learn learned that lesson from many many times of personal experience yeah, yeah. don't do that
0: no it doesn't <laughs> it's not, work
1: it's not effective <laughs>
0: right so you may have to change your way of being or your messaging to find another way so that they can discover it themselves and you kinda just plant the seed or you bend yourself or you make, like Bruce Lee said, make yourself like water. And then you sneak mm-hmm. in under the ego and you can get your point across without having to be right, without making them wrong. Again, right, wrong, like that's another dynamic. Like if, you're, if I'm right, then that means you're wrong. Then that is also competition or that, that blocks like, that blocks the energy around growth. Mm-hmm. So if you can make that a win-win or you can find another way to change your message or your way of presenting it so that they can actually hear it. And they may have an opportunity to make that change, to integrate that change into to their to their existence.
1: Mm. Beautiful. Yeah, one of the way that I reframe the whole idea of right wrong is everyone has their internal frame of reference. They mm. want to achieve something, and mm-hmm. if whatever I say can actually enable, empower, advocate, or accelerate what they want, mm-hmm. hell yeah, right? It'd be like, of course, please help me. Yeah. Versus someone who's coming in and with a very egotistical, I'm smarter than you attitude that whatever you're doing is wrong, do it my way kind of a thing. So now it's, it's um, opposition rather than you know, enabling. That's my new mental model there. Yeah,
0: building a team. Mm-hmm. A team we both can win
1: and collaborate. So speaking about that, uh, you're in the middle of your entrepreneurial journey. How are you attracting the right partner to join your team? Or for those people who are listening, who may be looking and they're in, into getting to their next venture, how can they emulate what you're doing? Mm. That's a really good question.
0: I would say just drop into what you think your role is in, where does your passion lie in whatever business you want to create, whatever product or service you're putting out. And really focus in on like what you want to do and what you see your role in the future and what's coming to you. I feel like for me it was very intuitive. Like my role is going to be the brand of the voice. I kind of vi- envision myself like when I create this content. I like to wear kilts and uh, kind of dress in a military style um, theme because I really believe in myself as a peace warrior. Mm. And so my message is a, we- a message of peace. Like if I'm a noble warrior, I'm a noble warrior for peace. Mm. And I want to imbue that into our brand and into the culture of our business and into the culture of what we're trying to create in reimagining richness. So I see myself as kind of like my own take on it, but kind of like a a Steve Irwin, he used to share a lot about plants, you know the cock hunter?
1: Right, right. I mean, he
0: used to share a lot about animals. I want to share about plants and Mm. about, you know, the beautiful properties of, say, turmeric, what it can do for your body, Mm. or maca or bee pollen. These are all ingredients that we use. and. I don't know everything about them, I'm not a botanist, I don't have all this knowledge, so it's just a curiosity in me. And as I go and discover these processes of how they're built, I want to share that with the world, with whoever wants to listen, whoever wants to know about their food. Mm. And so my role, I envision, is creating this content, traveling the world, getting down to the farmer's levels, and like not only um, ha- having them relay their story for us, so uh, but also adding more value to their life by helping to create co-ops so that we can really sit and listen to what they want or what they need to improve their their life. I don't want to feel like I'm this outsider westerner that's like, oh, you guys all need water or shoes or education. I want to sit there and create an, uh, an opportunity of true listening where I can hear what they have to say. And we actually have enough capital to make donations or to, to help bring new things in then we can do that based on what we've heard from them. So it's like building right. a real, actual, cultivating a real relationship. Right. So enabling
1: what they want. Yeah,
0: yeah. Not just telling them what they want. Right, but, right. Yeah. Here's
1: what you need: modern technology. Yeah. All right. See you guys later.
0: Yeah. yeah. Listening, truly listening, and I think that's going to take years to develop. But that's exciting to me. Mm. But so knowing what my role is, I, I feel like that's my role, and also like we're really big on supporting regenerative agriculture, which doesn't really have a commercial existence at this point, but it's starting to come on. It's a new movement. It's basically based on the fact that sustainable, we've done so much damage to the ecosphere already, and we've killed off so many species, and et cetera, et cetera, acidified the ocean and put too much carbon into the air. So I started working with this advocacy group called Kiss the Ground. Mm. And Kiss the Ground is all about regenerating the health of the soil. So that means regenerating the microbes, the organic matter, um, and the mycorrhizal fungi and those things work in harmony with the roots to uh, create more nutritious food for us. It's more like a wild system and it's not a monoculture and it doesn't have toxins or poisons spread into it and you don't till the land and what happens is the plants actually put more carbon in the form of sugar into the ground three to seven times more per acre than traditional conventional agriculture Mm. and the reason is they bring that sugar down to feed the microbes and the mycorrhizal fungi Mm. and the mycorrhizal fungi and the bacteria they bring in more nutrients which goes up into the food so it's a win-win again collaboration which I love and like part of my thing is to spread that message so knowing clearly what my role is when I get right into my passion and people just come I talk about that all the time people are just magnetized in like how can I help you build this? This sounds really interesting. It's very different from what everyone else is doing. You're not mm. talking about the bottom line. You're talking about people, planet, profit. You're talking about balance and harmony. So people are just naturally gravitated to that. Mm. So like I have people come to me all the time wanting to get involved in my business. I haven't really been seeking out anyone. Like, people have just been gravitating towards. Mm. So when, you, when you're when you in your passion, when you're in your flow, then those things just come into your world. And then for you, for me, I'm like always like, yeah, everyone's on board. And, that was part of my um, something that I had to work on because I didn't have enough discernment to just. I was just happy that someone saw my idea and thought it was great, you know. So, the first partner I had in the business, we weren't really in alignment with values, mm. especially in, in integrity. And so, mm. I, it took me some time, but I, had, I realized that and I had to like separate from him. So, now I'm more mindful of that. And when I bring a partner in or someone that's going to collaborate with us, I
1: suss out a little bit better. Is this person in line with our values? Because that's the the first part. How do you do that? Like what are some of the key questions or some criteria that you checkbox?
0: Yeah, I ask a lot of of questions about them like what experiences they've had in the past. I also maybe do some research on who they are and talk to some of the people that they've worked with before
1: mm-hmm.
0: and kind of enter the relationship more slowly, like, hey, this is tentative, let's see what this looks like, and then just do a lot of observation. Mm. I feel like sometimes if you ask too many questions or point out too many things and you kind of tip people off and then they'll start acting in a different way just to kind of know that.
1: They know what you're seeking. Yeah. So they they answer it,
0: right? Behave according to what you're looking for. To try and please you or to try and make it seem like they're a certain way. So I figure if you just let people do their thing and kind of mm-hmm. observe them and it'd be like, okay, mm-hmm. I really like the way they're doing this. And you can bring some attention to it and you have to really think holistically because we all have our flaws and our weaknesses. So sure. It's not like if they make one mistake, they're fired or something like that. It's not that mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. But you have to really evaluate over time and then you can give them some guidance and see how they do with it. and if they're still not coming around then you have to really know when it's time to separate mm-hmm. because um, for me this is like a this is a really personal thing and I was super I felt super vulnerable when I was first bringing it into the world because you know I made a product it's like is anyone gonna like it you know and,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and basically that comes down to love right are they gonna are they gonna like it if they don't like it does that mean they don't like me Does that right. mean it's not a good product do I feel validated do I feel loved mm-hmm. So all those questions started coming up because it's a creative, I feel like I'm an artist, and I'm creating mm-hmm. food as my as my gift. Mm-hmm. Like chefs are artists, and musicians are artists, and you know, there's all different types of artists and creations. So, if you have a creation, you're putting it out into the world. It's a very vulnerable process. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it could fail. For sure, someone could not like it. You know,
1: right? Judge it. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: So. Going through that vulnerable process and like really cultivating like who else is connected with this and how do they reflect into the world? And what are they showing about my business about me? So I, I've been more mindful about who I'm bringing in and how we bring them in
1: So if you don't want to actually talk about that a little bit more that, that's actually what I call the cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. Meaning that there is no evidence supporting this vision this idea yet mm-hmm Right, the reality of life is still catching up. Right, the evidence, the support. So in the beginning, naturally, you're gonna hear nothingness. Mm-hmm. Right, when the idea, the birth, the story, the narrative, the technology, the product, whatever it may be that you're birthing into the world, mm-hmm. in the beginning aspect of it is literally nothing. But through iteration and positive feedback, then you can generate that momentum. It sounds like you're generating that momentum, right? So if you can talk a little bit about that cognitive dissonance where you had that idea, even the prototype, the sprouting nuts that was helping you, Mm -hmm. how did you navigate that space? From nothing to something? From nothing to one person to two person, three people, that's the outer game aspect of it, but also the inner game. Mm -hmm. Oh, I don't know if people are like this yet. Yeah. I hope they do. But if they turn it down, the first person turning it down gave me some, any kind of criticism, natural reaction, shrink back. Yeah. Ah, uh, fuck this. Right? <laughs> Let me do something else. Yeah. It's too hard. right? Yeah. Whatever the rationalization is, survival instinct. So tell us a little bit more about that part. Well, that part was also, to be honest, very easy for me
0: because when I first started making the first flavor, which is sage and rosemary. I wasn't intending to make a business or anything. I was just I just um, sprouted the nuts, seasoned them, and then dehydrated them. And I was, again, in flow and in a point of discovery, like, hmm, I wonder what it'll taste like if I dehydrate it. And when I found out, that was my first aha moment. Wow, these are crunchy. And these are not that tasty because they don't have any flavor on them, but I really like the crunch. It's different than anything else I've experienced. And that was my first aha moment. I was like, well, well, let me try putting some, I put Bragg's Liquid Amino on my first uh, batch to kind of give it a little bit of a salty flavor. And I put some sage and rosemary from the garden. I lived in Topanga at the time. So I was just in flow, in curiosity, and that first flavor, sage and rosemary, came out really tasty, so I shared it with some friends and some family, and they really loved it. They kept asking me for more, so I kept making more and more. And then, after a while, I realized people were asking me for more all the time, and I'm like, "Look, you guys are going to have to start paying me because (laughs) nuts are really expensive." And I'm making like hundreds of pounds of nuts here and just giving them away for free. And they're like, "Okay, how much do you want?" You know, I was like, "Oh, well, maybe I have something here." So it was like at that point that I said, "Oh, maybe I have a business here." And I started to then I went to India on a trip with my ex, and we went to the spice market and we found all these really great curries and paprika, and I came back and I created a flavor that was a curry flavored cashew and then a maple pecan and then you know a trail mix and uh and as i started developing the flavors i was just like doing a lot of experiments and in flow and curiosity and see what would come to me again so i don't i don't really feel like i I forced anything or had this really intentional path i just stayed open to that that curiosity that divine spark and where it was guiding me Mm. so i guess it's like intuitive just intuitively discovering what what i find interesting Mm. and that's that's exactly what I'm doing with our our content creation like I'm just gonna share what I find interesting sometimes it's mushrooms I don't have any mushroom products but Mm. I find the the mushrooms are intriguing and the medicinal
1: properties and the food properties and all that stuff so
0: I'm not sure did I answer your
1: question I think so I mean it's here let me recap a little bit so what you said is you didn't have a uh, divine plan, you know, from A to Z, everything figured out, I'm gonna form a business, this is step one, two, three, four, five, you follow your curiosity, you generously share with your friends and family, and they kept wanting it, then you now say, hey, you know, help me make it sustainable, turn into pay me, essentially, Mm -hmm. charge, you know, oh, okay, now I'm, you just follow the flow, follow the momentum, and you keep going, you continue to follow your curiosity, and that curiosity, I'm hearing between the lines, turn you know, you're building that fire, right? Now turning to from curiosity to interest to now passion. Yeah, is that accurate from what I'm hearing between the lines?
0: Yeah, that's pretty that's pretty accurate. It's basically how it went. Just staying in flow, and I think this, that's our that's our. We're staying in that state of play of childlike curiosity. That's where we're staying in touch with our our divinity. I believe mm-hmm. that each one of us has a piece of God in us, right? So. If we can stay in touch with that, what does that look like? What is that how does that show up in the world? And usually it shows up mm-hmm. in the world as children because we are in flow, because we are present in the moment. We're not thinking about we gotta go to work or we gotta do this, or we gotta do that. We're just like, Hey, what's curious? What is this? Oh look at this caterpillar, how cool and you take five minutes to look at a caterpillar. Mm-hmm. I still do stuff like that. I take pictures of flowers all the time. Mm-hmm. Half of my Instagram is like flowers and mushrooms and all this crazy caterpillars and Bugs and nature. Like I'm really fascinated with nature. And one of the things too that I I used to post a lot about was um, all these different flowers. I'd get like right up in there and take these really close shots, and I would put um, hashtag proof of God. Mm. And someone goes, "That's not proof of God." Like they called me out on it one time on Instagram, which I thought was kind of interesting. And I was like, well, why do I think this is proof of God? And it made me do some inquiry. It pushed me into uh, Mm. introspection and into discovery. And I was like, well, why does this feel like proof of God to me? And what I came to with that was basically, like a flower is an aspect of God coming into the world, into form, manifest into form. Mm. Mm. An expression. An expression of Mm. God. And what is it doing? It's attracting, it wants to attract other aspects of God to itself Mm. so that it can continue to create life. Mm. So I was like, a flower is an aspect of God, attracting God to itself, so that life can continue. Mm. So I was like, yeah, it is really proof of God to me. Mm-hmm. And when you look at it from that sense, but I was able to go through that, and so I was really happy that that person made that little bit of a snide remark
1: because
0: mm. it really made me delve into it. So it's like it's a growth opportunity. Yeah. yeah, and the universe pushes you in that way if you're open to listening instead of being screw you or something like right, that. Right,
1: right. Like, so actually. Have you always been this um, spiritual? Because one may look at your how you birthed into the world and you know say, "God screwed me," basically, right? So I'm not gonna be uh, focusing on any, anything of that sort. So right. tell us a little bit about your spiritual journey, if you don't I wouldn't say that I was spiritual. I was raised.
0: I mean, my parents sometimes went to like Christian churches and stuff, but they weren't super religious. I would say. Um, there was periods where my stepmother went through stuff like that. But I always went to a like, Christian school mm. after my kindergarten, first grade experience. When they were going to hold me back into first grade, my dad took me out and put me into a private school, which was Christian, and they'd practice uh, corporal punishment there so you would get swats and stuff oh, like nice. that if you misbehaved. <laughs> and I always thought that was pretty cool, like a full-grown man giving a swat to a little kid. I'm like, hmm. But
1: so you had the, the wherewithal to actually know that uh, this isn't right? <laughs> it didn't seem right to me. <laughs> but that's the judgment, what's right, what's wrong. To them
0: it felt very right, right? Mm-hmm. Otherwise it wouldn't do it. But being raised in with all the Christian dogma and really understanding it and... and I don't know, I just never... I always felt like... There was so much hypocrisy in Christianity, I mean, the Catholic Church, but all the other churches, you know, that they're, they're saying one thing and then they're behaving in another way. Mm. Love is the answer, but if you don't believe in our God, we're going to kill you. Like, mm. that never sat with me very well. Mm. You know, murder is wrong, but we're going to still kill you because you don't believe in our God. It's like, come on, you didn't even follow your own rules. How can I believe what you're saying? Mm. This is the word of God. It's like, it was written by man. So I never really had that deep connection to it. I mean, did it go through periods where, you know, I went to chapel and church and all that stuff, and I felt like there's always something there, and my spirituality started to develop after after college. I really, not knowing my mother, I felt like I didn't really know that it affected me, uh, but when I went to college, I started drinking a lot, and I was like, suppressing something when i would get drunk i would maybe get angry and get in a fight or something like that Mm. and i started to realize that maybe there was something there so i tried to start looking for my mother and i uh Mm. just to try to connect with her and see something
1: there is in suppressed
0: something something suppressed okay gotcha
1: just want to clarify
0: yeah and so i started looking for my mother and i found out she had passed you know just Mm. when i was like 18 actually Mm. so i felt some guilt around not looking for her earlier uh i also felt some like sadness that and some anger towards her because I was like she couldn't give up drugs to like you know have a relationship with me Mm -hmm. but in the end and through ceremony and actually a lot of meditation I found that I really um, was able to come to a point of compassion for her Mm -hmm. Um, because I know she was doing the best she could where she was and she had all this damage in her life that caused her to live that life and to struggle her whole life with, with you know drug addiction so yeah like having having that relationship and having that suppressed anger and drinking a bunch and partying and like my relationship with women you know um, I was always very physically fit and attractive so like girls were always coming to me and it was very easy for me to to get you know sex I never had a problem with that so but it was always it never felt super connected it just Mm. felt like oh I'm just gonna have sex and it's fun and it's it's exciting it's physical It's physical but there wasn't a deeper connection mm-hmm. and I think really when I when I had like my and, and I had like this set mindset of when I get married I'm gonna date the girl for a certain amount of time then we're gonna be engaged for a certain amount of time then we're gonna have kids and it was like this whole the programming right mm-hmm. and so I got married and it didn't work out and I got divorced and that was like in 2009 mm-hmm. and that was a huge breakthrough for me that really help me come into contact with my spiritual side um,
1: mm.
0: first i just kind of let loose and traveled in europe and partied and that's when the pink bunny came out mm. and i started partying a lot and then i went to burning man and um that changed something for me burning there are two biggest things actually at that in that period of my life that really brought change into the world for me were i learned kriya uh, yoga which is a type of meditation that uh, Paramahansa Yogananda brought on, which is actually interesting because we're sitting at Lake Shrine, which was one of the first places he built in the U.S., Mm. it's this beautiful sanctuary in in the middle of Los Angeles, well, not in the middle, but in Los Angeles. And what I learned with meditation was sitting still and watching the thoughts that come up and then observing them and they just keep flowing in and you're like, where are these thoughts coming from? Like, what is the basis of this stuff? It's actually taking the time to observe that. And then you can start to see, oh, wow, this is like what my dad used to do. This is what my mom used to do. And is this really serving me anymore? Do I need to keep doing this? Because it doesn't feel right to me. Mm. It's like sitting and taking the time to see those things and see where they come from. And then root out the ones that are no longer serving you. Like that process has been super transformational for my existence. In the last 10 years is when I really got in touch with my spiritual side. Mm. And it was through meditation and through breath work. I also practice Wim Hof technique, which is like a hyperventilation technique and cold water plunges and stuff like that. And again, very profound, I mean, you can have visions, like DMT visions from breathwork. It's incredible. There's holotropic breathwork. There's all these different types of practices that you can do to really clear out like emotional, physical trauma in your body. Another one is emotional freedom technique. So all of these practices, which are spiritual, but they're not dogmatic no one's in control of them no one is like you have to do it this way and you have to follow us there are certain sects of these things like for instance we're at the self realization fellowship and they're a little bit dogmatic in the way they teach their stuff but i use the technique outside of the self realization fellowship and i have my own realizations and no one's in control of it and how it comes through Right,
1: Honestly. you're your own master
0: you're your own guru well, yeah, it's a technique and you're just getting in touch with your own godlike energy within. And how does that come forward? And for me, it comes forward with the curiosity, with the passion, with all of that stuff. So that's really that, and then getting into, I guess you would call it, uh, it sounds a little bit, I guess festival culture would be the thing that you could call it, but it sounds a little like, I don't know, weird or esoteric festival culture, but really... One of the things about Burning Man that's so great is that it's a, not only, uh, it's an experiment in how we can create a new reality or a new way of being with each other that's not based on competition. Mm. It's based on inspiration so that when we see these art pieces that people create, that we're inspired to do our own artistic creation and we are able to share our own gift, whether that's food or art or music or, you know, talking, whatever that is, whatever comes through, if you can get in touch with that and channel that and bring that into the world, I think that in some way that is a that is a way of getting in touch with your spiritual side because you are getting in touch. What is spirituality? It's getting in touch with your own spirit and bringing that into the world. It's like being inspired to bring your light, to have the courage to break the conventions, to not think about competition, to not think about profit. I mean, Burning Man is not profit motivated. People spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more, to build some of these art cars and these projects. And what are they getting out of it? Like, they're just getting to have this incredible thing that uh, is inspiring. And so I encourage people to continue to do that kind of stuff. And that's kind of the culture of festivals. And that part, and there's a lot of unconsciousness there too, you know. And Such as life such as life. yeah. But that, that's how I would say my spiritual connection awoken, awoken was from Burning Man and from meditation, breath work. That's where I really started to get in touch with my spirituality mm-hmm. as opposed to like a dogmatic
1: religious type of experience. Do you feel like your spiritual belief, mm-hmm. your point of view around your place in the universe, yes. your relationship, your own divine, your divinity, Yes. having that helps you navigate the uncertainty of reinventing yourself from fireman to entrepreneur from, hey, having this cool widget sprouted nuts to forming rich nuts to now wanting to provide a platform for all plants. Right? Do you y- feel like having that spiritual belief is, is helpful?
0: Yes, I do. Because it it's, again, it's fundamental to the way I show up. And now that I'm awake to it, or at some degree, you know, we're all in a process of waking up to our our divinity, and I don't feel like it's a competition again, like I'm more awake than you or something like that. Some people get caught up in that whole thing. It's true. (laughs) I'm more spiritual. There's like spiritual bypass and spiritual ego and all this stuff, and I, I feel more awake than I have been in this life, and it's because I continue to curiously explore my consciousness and i choose to dive deeper all the time and push push myself in those ways but i do think that that reflects in my business because mindfulness like whenever i eat i say a prayer and what i say is um and i don't speak it to any certain god or any specific you know source or anything like that i just say i give um gratitude and love for this meal I'm about to receive. I'm so thankful for all that it took to get here from the fossil fuels, the people power, the water, the sunshine, the minerals, the vitamins of the earth, the gases in the air, the wind, the things seen, unseen, every single aspect that I can think of, the, the animal that gave its life if I'm eating meat, the, the plants, um, the microbes, all of it. I'm so grateful that it's here. may it bless my mind, my body, and my soul. And like just bringing that mindfulness into my product is only a reflection of who I am as a being and where I am in my, in my development. Mm. So I want to bring all those aspects into it. And it's like I do give gratitude for the fossil fuels because I do acknowledge that most of our food, if it comes from the store, it has fossil fuels all over it. Everything that we eat is dipped in fossil fuels, maybe not literally, but the transportation. So we have to think of that. And if we start to put that into our consciousness, then we're going to start to think of ways to solve that problem. Mm. Maybe we need to start creating drone ships that um, are solar and wind-powered that mm. can travel across the oceans, mm. you know, and then they don't need people on them. So we can redesign the whole thing. We can reimagine how that ship looks like. It doesn't need people on it. It doesn't need a huge fuel tank. Mm. It just needs solar power and wind. And then we can travel across the ocean without any any fossil fuel impact. Mm. But, if you're not thinking about that, if you're like just transporting without you know, that mindset behind you, then you don't ever think to address that issue. Right. So yes, my spirituality is directly reflected in the way my business shows up, it has to be for me, otherwise I don't want to do it. Mm. And, and so being mindful of that and also my impact on these farming communities, am I just, was this an extractive, another version of extractive capitalism? Mm-hmm. Right now, we're such a small business, we're not really large enough to have impact. But once we start to have the capital to make impact, to start moving markets, to start changing markets, then it has to be about regenerative agriculture. So right now, I'm actively seeking out partners that are interested in building regenerative agriculture. And the study that I read about regenerative agriculture said within three to seven times more carbon sequestered per acre, depending on the crop, if you're using regenerative agriculture, And they said, if the entire world shifted over to, and that's a big if, if the entire world shifted over to regenerative agriculture in five years, we could avert the climate crisis. We'd get enough carbon in the ground to avert the crisis. That was the first thing that I had read that gave me any hope Mm. for our future, the future of humanity. And really the reason Rich Nuts exists as a business is because I believe, or we believe, that the children of this generation and future generations deserve a better earth a greener earth, a cleaner earth, and a more just earth, so we stand behind all the, the change makers, the rabble-rousers that are here to, to disrupt the paradigm and to create a new planet that's better for all of us.
1: I love that. It's yeah. a beautiful place to finish this podcast. Is there anything else that you wanted to share with the listeners who were listening and being inspired by your story, by your vision, by the way you think about creating businesses?
0: That's a good question. I think we covered most of it. Uh, I'm continuing to discover and to tell this story and anyone that wants to you know, follow my story and learn more about us, they can follow us on the Instagram channel and um, follow me in general because I, I had planned to really bust this thing loose. I was kind of waiting for the retirement to be finalized with the fire department before I come out in a big way with all this. So that just happened in March and so now I am ready to step out in the world in a bigger way and to build the story and and like I don't have all the pieces of this story and, I, and I'm willing to admit that and I understand that I don't so as I bring my parts forward then I'm open to collaborating with people that are willing to help me build the rest of it that I don't know about yet so it's still and it will be continuously a path of discovery and of learning and of growth for me personally but also for our business and for other businesses so I think that bringing consciousness into capitalism because really the businesses are what's driving our existence or our um the, the um economy is driving the way people live and the way people show up and so if we can shift that then we can get a different experience for all of us that's what i'm all about so anyone that wants to collaborate with that feel free to contact me
1: beautiful one well, including contact information showed up. yeah one last question <laughs> about the <laughs> i've i've loved, you know it has the podcast yeah one of the debates that I have with entrepreneurs is who operates from their principles and their purpose is that on the one hand, your primary job as entrepreneur is to make sure that the business succeeds. Right. Because without lifeblood, revenue, business dies Then you don't fulfill what, however beautiful the mission is. Right? Yeah, you don't get that. On the other, Also operate from purpose and core values, so you don't become money chasing, soulless business like everyone else. Yeah, let's say. So, if you're too principle—I'm not you, but just generally speaking—if entrepreneurs are too principle-driven, you're putting a lot of blocks to navigate within that realm and that realm only. Yeah. But if you don't put principles at all, you're just ended up chasing. So how do you navigate that, Absolutely
0: you know, balance, I
1: right? How do you navigate that?
0: Oh, um, well, like, as of now, like we basically, we realize that some of the stuff that we have, that we have to do now to get our business up and running is not necessarily in alignment with our values. Like we're using plastic bags to pack a oh, I see. We're, and we're buying from, you know, conventional suppliers, not conventional on the fact that they're not organic, but like big food business suppliers we don't have the relationships that we, that I'd like to build with the farmers and, and the mm-hmm. co-ops and all that mm-hmm. stuff so it's like you gotta do what you gotta do to get things going and once you have the capacity and the the capital and the you know, the, the presence to actually do those things and to integrate them then you start integrating them
1: I see so it's still it's not top of mind but it's still in your ra- on your radar yeah and then, then you make you know the ants me or whatever yeah. then when things are better then yeah. you can being tours because yeah, if you don't have a, if you don't have a profitable business and you don't have right you, have an hobby. you don't have a business right <laughs> you, <laughs> you have, don't, have you an hobby don't, expensive, expensive
0: hobby right making nuts for people but yeah um, starting to integrate those things so basically even on our website we put like a I think they call it a sustainability meter. And like, what have we done to, to make our Oh, you
1: self Police? Yeah.
0: Well, we put it on our website. Like, these are the things we've accomplished so far. And these are the goals we'd like to get. Like, we'd uh, like to someday be carbon neutral. Uh, I see. Be a carbon sink. But we're not mm. there. Mm. We don't even know actually how we're going to get to that point yet. Right. But that's the vision. Mm. And that's what we want to do. And so we put it on our website. This is the end goal. This mm. is where we want to get to regenerative. This, that, the other thing. This is where we are now. What's our next step? Compostible mm. package. So that way we can be transparent with right. our, with our um, customers
1: mm.
0: and we're like, this is what we want to do and this is where we're going and this is where we are. That's beautiful. So that way That's we're beautiful. not like, over-promising and under-delivering, over promising and under delivering we do not want to do that either. Right, like, you're not lying
1: to them. Yeah. Mm.
0: So we want to be honest with where we are and also we want to be clear about where we'd like to go. Mm. And that way you can inspire collaboration and maybe someone will be like, hey, I have an idea to help you get to right. point X. Right, right. And then when you get there, you can put that on. Yeah. And you can tell the story about that. Yeah, This is how we became carbon neutral. Mm. We have a solar-powered factory now, and all of our goods are delivered by electric trucks and, you know, um, wind-powered um, sailboats across the ocean, or whatever, you know?
1: Yeah, I love so, that.
0: So I think transparency is key because it helps to build your brand's integrity, you know? It's coming on strong because, like, I don't know, I don't watch the Super Bowl anymore, but I did see the commercials... One of the commercials was Ultra announced they have the first organic beer, which I was like, holy shit, beer drinkers now want organic beer, you know? Mm. And then. It's the trend.
1: So you were saying a little bit earlier about training yourself to stay calm when the buildings are coming down. Say a little bit more about that. Yeah,
0: so working as a fireman, one of the skills you learn is to remain completely laser focused. And even though you have a, an awareness at all times about what's going on around you because conditions could be changing and getting more dangerous, you also have to stay super laser focused on the job that you're doing at hand so that you don't make any mistakes. Um, if you make a mistake, it can be costly. It may cost you your life or it may cost someone else's life or an injury. And oftentimes as a paramedic, it's the same thing. Like someone's dying and family members are freaking out and cars are swerving by you on the highway. And you have to stay laser focused on your job, but also being aware that conditions could be changing. So you have to be aware of distractions, but not let them affect your performance. So what I find is helpful, certain techniques like box breathing, which is basically a slow controlled breathing, where you breathe, for instance, it doesn't matter what number you use, but say you breathe in and count to five, and then you hold it there at five, and then you breathe out for five, and then you hold it out for five, and then you breathe it in for five, so it's it's like a square, you know? breathe. Inhale and exhale are the same number the same amount of time as the as the the hold at the top and the bottom. So certain techniques like that, maybe SEALs use. I think it was in the book um, Stealing Fire, which is a great book. Highly recommend. But really being able to be aware consciously of those of the conditions you're in is super critical as a fireman. You could be in a building that's getting ready to collapse and there's certain signs that you can see like the walls starting to bow or you hear some creaking noises of like the the members of the of the roof starting to crack and you have to be hyper aware of those but you also need to be focused like you don't want to just trip and fall on something sharp and stab yourself on a you know a piece of furniture or something like that so you have to be hyper aware of what you're doing and you also have to be on some level aware and conscious of what's going on around you so laser-focused while also accounting for all the distractions. It's a skill that that you learn, and staying calm. Because if you get, uh, if you move into a point of fear, you might rush or make a mistake. When you rush, then you happen to make mistakes because you're in a hurry. And then you have to either repeat that process again, or you may get hurt and possibly die, or someone else could die. So it is definitely a skill set to stay calm in the face of
1: all hell breaking these loose essentially so recently I'm uh, I started boxing so similar situation like how do I remain calm so I don't make mistakes otherwise I get punched in the face
0: <laughs> right <laughs>
1: literally. literally and uh, it's a beautiful journey actually because you know it's one thing to have a lot of knowledge theoretically in my head it's another to get punched in the face I'm like oh, okay don't do that again yeah but nonetheless, part of the learning process is to getting punched in the face <laughs> so they internalize the lessons. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, too, because I also know that you hunt. Yeah. That's that's one conversation that we have. Would you say that would be a similar process where you have to remain calm and no matter what's going on in your surroundings? Say a little bit more about that.
0: A hundred percent. And it's funny that you said that about boxing and it brings up one of my favorite quotes. One of the only quotes I know from Mike Tyson, which is, Everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. <laughs> yeah, everyone's a gangster until you get punched in the face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then all of a sudden you're not so tough anymore. Yes, with hunting, you know, it's a lot of buildup and a lot of a lot of excitement and a lot of planning goes into it. And so there's you can put a lot of pressure on yourself to make the shot, and and sometimes that rush of adrenaline comes through. And I, the first time I was hunting a deer. And I'm a pretty good shot, but I I couldn't hit the side of a barn. I was shooting. I shot like seven or eight times, and I didn't even hit the thing, you know. (laughs) And I was bouncing around so much, and they call that, uh, there's actually a name for it, it's called deer fever or buck fever. And it happens pretty often. It's because that adrenaline comes into your body, and you're so excited that you can't stop shaking. Now, it doesn't happen to me as much anymore because I've learned to control that. And through the skill that I just talked about as being a fireman, through breathing, through taking a second and not rushing your shot and waiting for the right shot with a rifle or a bow. You really want to have like a, a clean one shot kill. That's ideal. Um, doesn't always happen that way, but that's that's what your, your goal is. So that might mean waiting or actually passing on an animal because it's in the bushes or because it has a tree between you and it, but you have to have the patience and the knowledge to to know that this may not be the ideal time. So, yeah, it does, it does happen. It does, you do get nervous because so much is built up for months to that point, you know, like all the preparation, the planning. So breathing slowly and deeply will help affect your, your state.
1: Do you feel that that's transferable? Let's say if I meditate every day for hour, hours and on, right? And that cultivates my ability to fight boredom as an example right and then does that translate to hunting or firefighting or or boxing or one must go through that process of being too excited you miss your shot you get punched in the face (laughs) hopefully you don't get stabbed but you get stabbed doing firefighting or whatever to earn that calmness of mind peace of mind
0: Yeah, I definitely think it's something you can cultivate. And the more you access that place, the more it becomes accessible to you because you've been there before, you know how to get there, whether it's breath work or whether it's mental practices, whatever it is, the more times you access that space, the more easily you can access it. And it's just a state. And like I said, the more you get there, the more you practice it. And it does translate into different aspects of life um, because it's really about uh, controlling your emotional state. Excited, if you're getting too excited then your body dumps a bunch of adrenaline and then you start to lose control of your function because you're in the fight or flight mode. So if you can learn to cultivate that through breath work I find to be the easiest way uh, through mental practices or other ways, visualization techniques, even visualizing like say the hunt beforehand, like okay you're gonna have this shot and you're gonna wait for it and it's gonna be perfect and you're gonna just take your time and you're gonna breathe and you're gonna shoot and animals going to drop right away and there's not going to be any struggle and all that.
1: Oh, interesting. So you don't visualize the negative, like they they call it, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Basically, the the anti-examples, right? Hey, what do you do when the deer is not in the perfect condition? Or what do you do when you're being punched, right? Um, So you don't visualize that. You visualize the ideal situation. Yeah, I always idealize
0: the uh, ideal situation, and I've I've done that with sports throughout my life. And different scenarios, um, I think if you visualize the wrong scenario, then you might end up getting that. And there have been times where I was like, oh man, this thing's going to happen and it's not going to be the way I want it to. And then sure enough, it happens that way. And I'm like, oh, I knew it. you know. Yeah. So it's always a self-fulfilling pr- prophecy. So you want to visualize what you want to see. You want to you want to see the thing you want to see and you want to you know bring that forth. And I think that visualizing it is a good way to do
1: that. Definitely. Thank you, brother, for being here. Thank you. I hope. I hope. All right, listeners, thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions about what we discussed, anything that needs to be answered, please go to noblewarrior.com forward slash group. We'll be happy to answer those questions there. Take care now.